Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I am Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a, a writer, a director, and also a podcast man. What I am not is hungover, um, however, <laughs> one of us is, because they had quite an exciting night last night. I'm talking about Dan, obviously, because he's the only <laughs> other one here. Um, yeah, it was great. We had the, uh, we're recording this the day after the first of three screenings of Lords of Chaos at the London Film Festival. Spoiler alert, that is going to be one of my recommendations of something i've watched in the last week <laughs> amazing uh so yeah i guess i don't know maybe should i save this till then uh yeah, yeah. go on good party though it's nice yeah so right. uh let's move on what are we talking about this week sir? I, i'm fresh as a as a daisy so uh i, I will uh, i'll explain what we're watching it's a film called 12 monkeys as you may have gathered from the itunes description it's uh terry gilliam's uh science fiction uh, I was going to say weird fest, but in the context of his overall uh, career, it's normal... one of his most mainstream yeah. normal films, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, What's I like it? it. What's it about? I think it's his best film. Um, Do you? Well, no, I think it's his second best film. Yeah. It's his I, second best film. Yeah, agreed. Um, it is inspired by Le Jeté. Um, it is a science fiction uh, picture that sees Bruce Willis's character sent back in time from a crumbled society in the future to locate the typhoid Mary of or the origin of a virus that wipes out the vast majority of mankind. Um, but at any moment, he can be pulled back to his own timeline to be questioned by his his people. And as he goes back and forth, he starts to doubt whether or not the future, like his own timeline is even real. So it plays into his mental health. Absolutely. And um, spoiler alert, we are going to go into spoilers in this because it's a very popular film. And, you know, yeah. And sort of part of part of what Dan's describing um, is kind of a really interesting switch for me anyway, um, because as James Cole goes Back in time, uh, he meets a, a psychiatrist uh, played by Madeline Stowe uh, named Catherine, who essentially is trying to convince him that he's a madman, um, and uh, he's trying to convince her that he's from the future. Um, and there's a kind of lovely sort of midpoint switch where um, she has some evidence. Actually, he is from the future, yeah. you know. But by that point, she's kind of convinced him. And so it's an inversion of uh, who's convincing who about yeah. the sort of their mental states, which is uh, a really interesting. Like it's a great script. It isn't is it? a really really tight script. Well, it's written by David and Janet Peoples, mm. uh, who, who seem lovely, <laughs> seem very nice, yeah. and also who are obviously sort of like sci-fi royalty, mm. having written Blade Runner. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really good script, and yeah. and I think that it's. There are strong arguments that Gilliam is, uh, even though Gilliam's best film, in my opinion, is one he wrote himself, I think that he is in the safest, he's the most reliable when he's working with someone else's script. See, spoiler alert, my, uh, what I feel is his best film is uh, a different film that he didn't write. Oh, in fact, Fisher King. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. the first film. Fisher King's great. Yeah, yeah. I think it slightly unravels at the end. Oh, okay. But, um, but it's a fantastic film, and yeah. I would say it's his... Third best film. Well, whereas it's my wife is, Jen's is your favorite, favorite film of all time. Yeah, yeah, she loves Gilliam. Yeah. Um, Jen Handoff loves Gilliam. And your favourite is... Oh, okay. I thought... Yeah. You, for some reason, I thought you were a massive Time Bandits fan. I do really like Time Bandits. Yeah, he's yeah. a very good director. He is, isn't he? <laughs> I, I like Barry Munchausen as well. Like, you know, he's a... I even quite like Jabberwocky. <laughs> so I was... Yeah, me too. So I was very, very lucky a few years ago, maybe four years ago, because I did... Uh, I interviewed Gilliam for an hour... Uh, on on camera um, and we edited it down to 40 minutes because the the premise of the show was career in 40 minutes Um, however we could have used the whole hour because like Gilliam is the best person to interview like everything he says is interesting and enlightening and yeah I'll I'll put a link up to that uh, on Twitter uh, when this goes up because that's on YouTube but um, did you do that for? uh, it was for Total Film and so we literally I literally went through 
film by film. So starting wow. with Jabberwocky and um, he has amazing anecdotes for everything. But also like he talked about um, like having meetings with Heath Ledger while Heath Ledger was making The Dark Knight and like him gossiping about the, the making the, that Batman movie. And wow. um, he talks about showing uh, Hunter S. Thompson Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, Another great film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and basically kind of watching him um, watch the film and apparently he got so excited at one point he fell off his chair. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's so many good anecdotes. but um, and, and thankfully there is a lot of Gilliam on this disc, isn't there? There is, yeah. Well, I mean, it's... it's the extra features-wise, there's a nice sort of appraisal that's new. Yeah. But a lot of the stuff is... Arrow's done a really good job of collecting extra features that already existed yeah the audio commentary was done for the laser disc that's right yeah um the hamster factor i remember having that on vhs yeah yeah exactly um, yeah, yeah. so yeah like a, a, you may have come across some of these extras before they're they're worth a revisit they're really good yeah definitely um, especially hamster factor which i hadn't yeah. watched in years yeah and, it was really um, nice to see that again yeah and sort of yeah coming at it through a filmmaking perspective like it is a really very honest representation of what it's yeah. like to make a, a film. And I remember, I think when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is a bit much. And this is, you know, because some of the footage of Gilliam especially, yeah. there's a moment where um, where he's he's basically, someone's asking him if he's okay, like, you know, probably in the middle of the shoot. And he basically says that, you know, filmmaking is, is hard work and, and, and disappointment that he can't get his what's in his head mm. onto the screen. And he seems very despondent. And I think when I was younger, I thought, oh God, he's more miserable than I realised. But now I've just realised that it is fucking yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. um, Even so, if you have the opportunity to do it, you've then got to fucking squeeze that vision out. And exactly. It's... <laughs> it's exactly it. So it's a really, really great look at filmmaking very honest yeah and the audio commentary um which is with his producer charles roven yeah yeah it's interesting good as it's well. yeah it, it's less a dissection of what the film means although they do drift into that mm. it has a lot of technical information which i really, which I really does liked. yeah um whether it's down to like what is real and what isn't in a shot like you know so the snowy exteriors at the beginning um they do a really nice breakdown of of what's digital what's practical what's miniatures and then, like, why they chose locations and how they dressed things and what they found and how things differed from the script and how things differed from what he'd imagined when they started. So it's a really nice... It's Again, it's a really good insight into his process making films. Here's what I would advise um, in the spirit of 12 Monkeys. I would watch these extras in this order, okay. right? So I, I'd watch the interview with Gilliam at the London Film Festival yep, first. Yeah, that's good. Then I'd say listen to the audio commentary because there's stuff in the London Film Festival interview that kind of get gets answered in the yeah. commentary weirdly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I would watch The Hamster Factor because yep. there's a lot of crossover in terms of what they're talking about on the commentary and what we see in The Hamster Factor. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. to see it in that order... It's very interesting to hear it in the audio commentary and then yeah. see the reality of the situation in the hamster factor. Like for for you know, if there's anyone out there who's interested in filmmaking, and I know that plenty of our arrowheads are because I talk with them um, quite a lot. This is an amazing disc for yeah, it is really good going behind the scenes, and yeah, and the film itself is 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 good. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, I feel like it is well so well known that, yeah. and and so talked about that. There's probably not a huge amount we can say that's entirely novel no um it's yeah it's just a really good satisfying sci-fi yeah um, with um a very very uh, great performance from bruce willis one of the best yeah I'd, yeah i'd say his his best i'd say his best as well actually yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and obviously brad pitt's incredible in it as well he is and oh, there's a lovely thing in the lovely bit in the hamster factor where you actually and again you know if you watch it in that order you hear about brad pitt receiving like vocal training on the yeah. audio commentary and yeah. then you actually see it on the yeah. hamster factor yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's fascinating and like seeing him evolve into yeah. that well he was promising gilliam that he would be able to deliver the character the audio yeah, yeah. coach said well he's not going to be able to do this he can't talk that fast he can't be that manic yeah yeah and pitt was like i can learn 
I'll do, pit, I'll do you it. Know, back then, like this was right on the turn when um, you know Brad Pitt was basically seen as being like a pretty boy actor. Well, he, he was, was in just been of, voted the most like the sexiest man in the world, hadn't he? This is it, and and this was the same year of Seven. So 1995 yeah. was a really turning point year for Brad yeah. Pitt. Well, when they cast him, uh, Legends of the Fall and Interview with the Vampire hadn't come out yet. Yeah. And then while they were in pre-production, he got voted Sexiest Man in the World. Yeah, and, and I think he was prepping for Seven while he was yeah. making 12 Monkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so. Gilliam was, and Gilliam says that he would constantly make decisions uh, to fight back against this pretty boy thing mm. so like getting his ass out in the in the yeah yeah was his idea in the asylum like constantly being like as as extreme as he was he was really really wanted to push it and i have to say you know say what you want about brad pitt but he does use or he has previously used his sort of his power as a as a star in positive ways yeah, you I know think so. fighting for the ending at seven you know getting Fight Club made, essentially. And, yeah, I think he's a really interesting actor. And there were a lot of other interesting films out this year. Um, it was uh, when I was working at, at a cinema um, when 12 Monkeys came out. So I have seen this film so many times, <laughs> especially the ending, because, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, in some cinemas, uh, basically, you are offered the choice um, of a film to sit in on and make sure that everyone's behaving themselves. It doesn't yeah. really happen as much anymore, hence yeah, people I did complaining. It, I, I didn't get anything as good as 12 Monkeys, but yeah. I, when I worked at the Empire in Leicester Square when I was a student, they had a, a policy where there had to be a member of staff in every screen at this any is given it. time. This is it, so yeah. I would, Yeah, so I'd be there and I saw... Oh, fuck me, I saw some terrible films a million times. I saw Love well, Actually, it. like a million times. This is it, I mean, I, I saw... cut my own head off. I saw Dunstan checks in probably, you know, more times than the director, you know. <laughs> Johnny Mnemonic, I saw many, many times. Along comes Polly, I <laughs> yeah. had to sit through a lot. <laughs> but, but, you know, the upside was that um, it meant that, you know, I saw seven, uh, hundreds of times, Casino, Leaving Las Vegas, Desperado. Oh, wow. Um, Mortal yeah, Kombat, which I have a soft spot that's for. That's a much better... Crimson Tide. So, yeah, 95 was a fucking great year. Um, and yeah, 12 Monkeys, like I say. Yeah, I saw a lot, a lot, a lot. But, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's pretty much all we have to say on this one, isn't it? Yeah, it does. I'm trying to find something to read you because you've reminded me of something. So right, I'm going to fill by yeah, talking you've, you've about found... one of the locations. Yeah, um, do. So they filmed it at the Eastern State Penitentiary in, in Philadelphia for the sort of the mental hospital scenes. And um, as Gillian points out on the commentary, it's the world's first penitentiary. And it was sort of, uh, it was built in 1829 and it sounds fucking insane. Like, um, I want to see a film made of this. Um, basically, prisoners were forced to wear hoods whenever they were outside their cells and all form of um, human interactions were forbidden. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, and, and silence was enforced. So it's basically like this weird religious, like, enforced... Well, it was literally a, a place of penitence. Yeah, exactly. That's what, yeah, that's what, prison, yeah. that's what Gilliam says on the, on yeah, the yeah. thing. So, Which is um, horrifying. Yeah, exactly. So, um, he talks about the high suicide rate because they were all in solitary for the whole thing. Yeah, and, and not allowed to interact in awful. any way. It sounds yeah. fucking insane. But anyway, have you found your, uh, found your thing? Did I feel well? Uh, you did, but I didn't find it. <laughs> I think it's so long ago that it's an old email address. But I can... I'll... I'll uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase heavily and remember it. So, Sam, I know you know who this is. I don't know if our listeners are aware, but there's a, a wonderful filmmaker out there uh, called Dave the Rock Nelson. Oh, um, yes. Now, <laughs> this was, this was... Finally, the reason for this podcast kicks in. <laughs> we've, uh, we've lulled you all into a false sense of security. Well, hello, and welcome to the Dave the Rock Nelson podcast with Sam and Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, some very formative uh, moments in Sam and my friendship were watching some of Dave's films on the big screen. The the only way there and oh my goodness so I, I i first discovered dave the rock nelson while i was working on a job in 2000 2001 um traveling around the states and spending a lot of time at colleges like showing films and 
helping out with and, and filming stuff and helping out with a, a live tour that was promoting a feature and uh, we'd often end up you know when I was 21 we'd often end up hanging out with the college kids and one night they had a project we had a projector with us and one of them had a Dave the Rock Nelson film or a collection of Dave the Rock Nelson short films actually uh, and they put them on and I was immediately in love flash forward a few years uh, I met someone who had been in long, long-term communication with Dave, and they forwarded me one of his emails. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, he was a... I mean, um, is there anyone? Is there, <laughs> he, was a, he was a relatively celebrated amateur boxer in the army. He had a sort of boxing career off the back of his, his time in the armed forces. But, but mostly, he is uh, a monster movie obsessive, like a... Like a like old school monster movies and absolutely obsessed to the point that it dictates his life mm. in every possible way. So he makes these movies completely self-funded. He often plays like nine-tenths of the characters. Um, if he can, he'll rope in one of the still-standing old horror guys. He uses a lot of Edwards, like these geriatric actors who were in Edward movies will turn up. In his in his films, and he makes werewolf movies and mummy movies and and that kind of stuff. But he is so he, his intros are part of the charm because he his films, if you get hold of them, they've always got a little spoken intro on the front. A of little, them. Uh, sometimes and then, it can run quite he, a long time. He interrupts himself <laughs> <laughs> so often because he'll obviously record this thing, and it's just him chatting to the camera in his garage or something. And telling you how good his coffee is. His Java. His Java. It's good, good Java. Um, but he'll he'll stop and interrupt himself because he'll watch it back and then think, oh well, I could expand on that. Yeah. And it'll drop into another video that he's made later. Yeah. Which might just be him doing chin ups or push ups. Exactly. Or, oh my goodness, they're wonderful. And then, uh, yeah, the films themselves are slightly hard going, but they're a fantastic party watch. I mean, um, especially if you're having a long party. Like, yeah. I think Devilant is what, three hours three long? Three and a half hours long. Three and a half hours long. I think that's including a, the intro, though. It's got a, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's got a cameo from uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Hillary Rodden Clinton um, is in it, yeah. Yeah, she, she definitely agreed to be in it. She and definitely wasn't. Just, wasn't. <laughs> I mean, have you, seen, have you seen Bowfinger? Because <laughs> it's, it is. He is a, he is a, a real life version of Bowfinger. He, oh my um, god! It really is it, though. It really is. Yeah. She's giving a talk in his town, and he decides that he'll have her in the movie. And it, Devilant is a rubber toy <laughs> ant that he bought, <laughs> and then he'll just hold it closer to the lens, like you know, special effects. So yeah. it looks big. Yeah. And she's off on a podium giving a speech, and he's there like handicapping her from a block away on Zoom, doing her voice behind the camera. Yeah. Being like, I'm Hillary Clinton. I'm here to talk to you people about the Devilant. It's a scourge of our society. <laughs> And then he'll like he brings the ant in from the frame with his other hand, and he's doing this all handheld, and oh, it's just wonderful. Yeah. But anyway, so Scott, lovely Scott Pullman, sent me an email that he had had from Dave, and Dave writes the same way he makes films. There are endless nested brackets. Mm. Everything's in capitals. <laughs> but he was talking about how he he was um, he'd lost his job at the local movie theater, which he was doing to fund. Uh, from making his movies and uh, it turns out that it's because he was just watching The Mummy instead of doing it this is the <laughs> Brendan Fraser Mummy he'd just been sitting instead of doing any of his work he just got <laughs> just sit in it but he's like but he's like I lost the job but still I got to see The Mummy 27 times and I've got enough money for a new titles box from Radio Shack Amazing, <laughs> an absolute filmmaking hero. I sent uh, I sent clips of uh, Dave Rock Nelson's stuff to Harmony Corinne when I was working on Trash Humpers, and yes. he is instrumental in the aesthetic oh. of Trash Humpers. That was part of our reference when I brought that to that's amazing to attention. Yeah, that is amazing, incredible. Yeah. Sorry, we've got very off topic. Well, we haven't, we haven't, because we segued from um, you know talking about a madhouse to talking about uh, Dave the Rock Nelson. I think there's a slight crossover there. Yeah, I mean, I think that possibly some of his directing choices are responsible to the number of punches he took to the head while um while boxing yes but but we we love those films yeah, so um yeah well let's move on to recommendations shall we yeah yeah i think so okay. um my first one's uh city lost children of course Jean -Pierre Genet. yeah great uh, i think it's quite an obvious connection i can't imagine there are too many people out there but if i can introduce just one person to that yeah and in fact that and delicatessen but mostly 
City of Lost Children. It's a it's a wonderful kind of dreamscape, uh, dark sci-fi with elements of horror. It's yeah, it's it's a it's a absolutely wonderful film. I feel like the music works. There's yeah, the, there's the some stuff. Similar. There's some there's some similarities to the music. So, yeah, yeah. It's um yeah, I don't know. I don't really know how to describe it. Uh, a, a, a youngish Ron Perlman plays a nearly mute strong man at a circus and befriends a small girl who is running away from an oh it's been years since I've seen it is she running away from the orphanage at the beginning uh, yeah years for me as well but I think so yeah. yeah the orphanage who have who has an amazing school in it uh, which has a two headed teacher who's part of the the sort of the, the general freak menagerie in the uh in the thing, and who I think was very instrumental on the two-headed character in um, American Horror Story. They do some of the same gags. Uh, but it's really, really nicely done. Uh, and in classic Genet style, it's got some... Well, because this was back when Caro was with him as well, so um, it's darker. It's mm. pre-Amelie. It's pre the, the, the sort of slightly fluffier Jean-Pierre mm. Genet era. And I remember just being blown away when a, a trained flea is sent to deliver venom to someone and the camera is sort of strapped to the back of this flea and you get these amazing shots as it bounces through mm. this sort of like greenlit sewer town uh, as it's making its way across uh, across the city it's fantastic definitely and yeah if you're a Guillermo del Toro fan as well there's 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 crossover there as well oh, yeah. um, a great recommendation now for my two recommendations there's stuff that you may think I've recommended on the podcast in the past, but <laughs> and and technically I have, but I, I recommended them in terms of what I watched in the past couple of weeks. However, they work so well with Twelve Monkeys. I feel like I kind of have to put them in. You know, there there, there are sort of more obvious ones. Like you know, definitely watch The Fisher King, which if you haven't seen it, which is on uh, Criterion in the UK. There's an amazing Criterion Blu-ray of that. And you should also watch The Terminator if you haven't seen The Terminator. Does the UK because Criterion have the audio commentary from the American Criterion Laserdisc? Yes, it? yeah, it does. Yeah, Boom. yeah. Boom. That that was a that was a an old, very hard to get hold of yeah it's, it's an amazing so day i haven't got the uk blue i'll get that but yeah also watch the terminator if you haven't seen the terminator if there's a if there's a, a one person out there who hasn't seen that film then obviously that goes so well with 12 monkeys however and the last boy scout as well because oh, it's yeah. another great bruce willis performance however it is really good my first recommendation <laughs> oh, yeah, first <laughs> um is a, a film from uh 1977 called Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself ah, nice. with Tea. Um, it's a Czechoslovakian time travel comedy, and Gilliam mentions frequently um, across various things on this disc about how he wanted to, or how he felt like he was making a European art house film but through the Hollywood studio system. Um, and this is very much like a very entertaining kind of. A European art film. It's basically about um, a, a rocket designer um, who, whose twin brother dies in an accident. Um, and so he decides to impersonate his kind of more popular twin brother, um, but accidentally finds himself getting involved in a plot uh, to travel back in time uh, to Nazi Germany to help the Nazis win. So he then has to stop the Nazis from winning um, and comedy ensues. Um, yeah, it's a, a really kind of entertaining, slightly romantic, slightly funny, very weird and, um, you know, architecturally interesting uh, time travel movie. So I feel like there's a crossover there for sure. What is your next recommendation, Dan? So this is uh, another Czech film. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's uh, those of you who haven't come across this director... If you, when you watch his stuff, it'll be eye-opening as a an indication as to where Gilliam kind of got his inspiration for his style. There's a um, a Czech filmmaker called Karel Zeman, K-A-R-E-L Z-E-M-A-N, who did a number of films, including a fantastic Baron Munchausen uh, picture, which obviously Gilliam mm. had also tackled. Although it's not the Munchausen that I'm I'm specifically talking about, but um, his he was a an illustrator for an advertising firm who got into animation because someone asked him if he could do a short animated logo for them. And he uh, he 
spend the advance on uh, an eight millimeter reel of Felix the Cat animation, which he then cut up and made it you know, like had them developed as photographs, made it into a flick book, and studied like how the moving image was created from these stills, and then. Once he understood it, he made the logo. It was a success, uh, and then, but he, by that point, he'd sort of fallen in love with with animation. So he he started doing his own shorts. I think if if not the next one, then a very early short of his was just like he just jumping straight into the deep end. He did an amazing one with um, all of the figures are blown glass, all the backgrounds blown glass. It's a sort of a ballet dancer on a lake. Um, so obviously, any movement requires a new, a completely unique piece to be blown for it it's an enormous amount of planning it's gorgeous but his first feature which was a uh, government subsidized uh it's called the journey to the beginning of time or a journey to the beginning of time from 1955 mm. it's it's incredible his storyboards for it are, are cited as some of the first examples of modern storyboarding he kind of invented it but he also was really really inventive with his special effects so journey to the beginning of time is about um some kids that go on a well travel through travel backwards through time to the to the dinosaur age um, and they basically go on a, a sort of dinosaur safari and it's very gentle and fun and nice um but the the constant work with puppets and rear projection and double exposure and animation and like in one shot the kids will be animated paper cutouts of themselves that he's made because that works best with a double exposure and it's just yeah just absolutely fantastic it's not the one that's most going to indicate um zeman and gilliam's aesthetic connection but mm. it is the one with time travel in it yeah and and yeah they i don't know you probably knew this already but gilliam started out in the same way um yeah he worked in advertising yes, yeah, to yeah, start yeah. With, so um that's how he got into his animation yeah exactly so that's a really nice recommendation and crossover and I have to say, I just want to point out that um, the reason every now and then I'll do, you know, uh, too many recommendations or something. Now, in this instance, it's because on our letterbox list, if you've mentioned a film in the past, you can't put it on the letterbox list again. So when I do recommendations for stuff that I've already mentioned, I feel like I'm not advancing the letterbox list. <laughs> so so, rattle so off just stuff. thrown off some you know stuff that I know that's not in there. Okay. Because I want us to get to a thousand a thousand films well, discussed. We we'll just have to keep doing the podcast forever, Sam. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that's fine by me. So my next recommendation is one I've recommended uh, before in the past. Um, almost like time travel I don't know if that works uh, but it's called I Killed Einstein Gentleman yeah. from 1970 it's another Czech movie and this one kind of ties in again it's time travel but it kind of ties in with the weird future of uh, of 12 Monkeys um, because uh, this one's about a future society that's been decimated by an atomic bomb, which has uh, caused the women to grow beards and uh, they can no longer have children. Um, and so the United Nations get together and decide uh, to send people back in time uh, in order to kill Einstein. So um, the nuclear bombs will, will never exist. And things get out of hand and uh, funny and silly and... Yeah, it's one of the most entertaining movies ever made. I love I Killed Einstein, gentlemen, so I'm happy to recommend it again. Yeah, and that's it for recommendations, recommendations. based on the past. No, that's it for recommendations based on the movie. Now it's time for based on the past couple of weeks. Dan, what have you been watching? I I told you it was coming. I finally got to see Lord yes. of Chaos on a big screen with an audience. It with was... the perfect audience for a special effects artist. It, well, so here's the thing. I've been doing a bit of reading and it seems like this is not an uncommon response. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Which is, I, uh, yeah, we had, uh, we had four faintings and, uh, and one full-on someone threw up. <laughs> Which is the dream, right? Which is, yeah, it's about... It's interesting, I was chatting to Andre. I mean, you feel bad for them, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the most unconvincing yeah. yet I've ever heard from you. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was chatting to Andre, one of our regular listeners, um, about this on Twitter, uh, and he was saying he, uh, he 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 could understand people vomiting in a cinema, but the the fainting, he was like, does that really? He didn't think that was a thing that really happened. Like mm-hmm. you know. Um, I wonder if it's people with low blood pressure standing up to leave. <laughs> oh, maybe. Then, 
But I, I also, I do think it's a thing. Like, I do think it's a thing. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you hold your breath for so long that, you know. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't pass out during my first watch of um, Wages of Fear. Yeah. I, was, I, I would regularly fight, notice that I hadn't inhaled for a while mm. or hadn't exhaled for a while. I yeah. think I've been the, on the edge of fainting a couple of times. We, had, sure um, we had a guy faint at the Cannes press screening of Human Centipede 2. Amazing. Uh, he got up and said, I'm not watching a minute more of this filth. <laughs> and stormed out and then went all wobbly-legged on his way up the, uh, wow. up, up the aisle. Yeah. Stacked it at the back of the thing. This is a bit of a bad story. Stacked it at the back of the screening room. Um, hit his face on the door handle as he went down and was, had a really bad nosebleed. Like, was pouring blood. And so all the press got photographs of the... Uh, <laughs> Wow. The outside of the Human Centipede 2 screening. And that Blood dear, everywhere. And that, dear listener, is why you always stay till the end credits of a film. So you don't slip. So, so the you house lights go, go, go up and you don't slip in blood. Oh, God. Poor guy. Um, <laughs> like Cape Fear. Yes. But yeah, Lords of Chaos. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's dividing people a little bit. Some people say it's too much. Some people it say it's too unpleasant. Those people are idiots. They, the, the main kickback it's getting are from... Uh, certain groups in the metal community who are grumpy about it for various reasons. Right. Okay. But it's really good. It's a. I think the thing I like about it is it um, it balances a lot of things uh, really, really well. And it's a it's a um, it's very much a film about contrasts. And because of that, it's got some really genuinely like quite touching moments in it. It's quite funny in a lot of places. Um, and those all serve to make the the nasty stuff much more effective. Mm. I was chatting to Jonas um, the other day uh, for an interview, a bit of which we'll, we'll, we may get to later, and I can't remember if this was on, on mic or, or not because we've chatted for quite a bit separately as well, but he was saying that um, he found that the MPAA, who were having some pretty strong troubles with it, because he was contractually obliged to deliver an R-rated version as well as his director's cut. Oh, wow. And he was doing the R-rated version for the MPAA. And they said, the, the thing is, if it was a horror movie, we, we'd leave all this stuff in. Mm. And he said, well, can we just call it a horror movie? Mm. Like, why does that make a difference? And he's like, well, they're like, no, it's not... It's not that it's not called a horror movie. It's that you've treated the characters like they're in a drama. Right. So we care about them and we connect to them in a way oh, that right, you okay. don't if... Like, you have a different mindset going in to a horror movie. That's you expect really people to die. Yeah, because uh, that, uh, cause I did wonder, because I, I, I'm sure that's what's making people react so strongly yeah. to it. Because, you know, we've all seen a lot of violence. So I'm like, what is different about this violence? Is can, it because you care? Can I read you something? Yes, please do. <laughs> so this is... Uh, we I, didn't plan this, dear listener. This is just no, the way no, we well, roll. I, I slightly planned it. <laughs> oh, son of a bitch. This is... I was, uh, I was doing a little bit of... Uh, I don't like being manipulated. Then. I've not manipulated okay, you. I'm just good. prepped, which oh. I know is rare. So you're surprised <laughs> by it. <laughs> uh, I was reading some some responses to the film uh, online, uh, and I'm not going to read out the reviewer's name because they hated the film. Right. But this is from uh, this is a, a user review from Letterboxd, and he says. Uh, in all three instances, three moments of violence in the film, in all three instances, what makes the violence so upsetting is the unholy marriage between craft and performance. Akalam presents the bloody damage with pornographic attention. He also directed the imperiled actors to behave as realistically as possible when faced with the gravity of their respective demises. Spoilers now, so I'm going to leave that bit. The, these are the three most realistic depictions of death that I've ever seen in a fiction film. You've never seen anything like this. My parents raised me on Blood Feast and Jason Voorhees, and Lords of Chaos proved too much to handle. Yeah, and then he goes into more. You into must more, be so happy. I just wish that person was a like a, an actual critic, so I could rip that out and put it on everything i mean like dear sweet listener dan, like blood feast is such an important film for dan so to have that comparison in there is uh, is really lovely um that person has accidentally paid you the most <laughs> massive compliment well, they, i mean they you know he, he he's very very complimentary about the, the technical side of the right. effects uh throughout the article he just thought it was too much didn't, yeah didn't yeah. like the result yeah. which is fine that's absolutely fair it's kind of what you want isn't it wow okay i'm not sure quite how to follow that um i had no involvement in the making of the forbidden christ from 1951 um however i am going to recommend it oh, you set yourself short <laughs> <laughs> to be fair you know maybe i did go back in time and direct this under a pseudonym but um 
Yeah, it's fucking amazing. It's influenced by Italian neorealism. Uh, it may have partly inspired The Seventh Seal. Um, it's a revenge film um, about an Italian man who comes back to his village after his brother is murdered by Germans to take revenge. It's one of the most pure examples of art house meets grindhouse I've seen. Both elements are completely equal. And it's basically this kind of... Um, this moral tale about um, the pursuit of vengeance and, and what could kind of justify vengeance and, and what effect um, taking revenge can truly have on someone, how, you know, you can be consumed by it. Uh, amazing performances across the board, beautifully shot, some, you know, stunning locations. And, um, yeah, it just feels very ahead of its time and, and very interesting. So it's available on, what, where did I get it from? I think it's an Italian DVD I've got, but it has English subs. So it, it is out there. You, you'll be able to track it down. Um, you'll be able to get it on Amazon um, for quite cheap. Um, but yeah, The Forbidden Christ from 1951. Um, and kind of how I came to it is quite interesting just quickly, but um, I had a big birthday recently and... Um, uh, my my sister's partner is basically he's from New Zealand and he's moved around the world a lot um, and he has carried with him this book of classic films that um, you know uh, was very important to him when he was younger and he takes it wherever he goes and um, for my birthday this year he gifted it to me after seeing Frankenstein's Creature um, he came to see it you know on the big screen and he just felt like I should have this this and it's amazing so sweet like it's it's you know it's it's you know drea bergman antonioni like all of these amazing movies um but but this book was written you know at the time of those movies so pre-internet and pre you know but somehow the, the the author has gathered together um all of these criterion classics basically it's like the criterion collection in one book so I basically scoured it for all the films that I haven't seen and The Forbidden Christ is one of those. So um, I am, have tracked down a few of these films that I'd never heard of before this book, so I will be recommending them on future podcasts. Um, so uh, you all can have uh, this insight from this wonderful book. So yes. What's the book called? I can't remember. I think it's just, <laughs> I think it's just something like classic film. Like it's something really simple. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and anyway, I'm not going to tell you lot because you'll just you'll you'll catch all my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to keep all people stealing. Got to keep my knowledge. Um, yeah, what's that what? finite resource? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's next for you, Dan? Um, I watched an old western noir from 1947 oh. called Pursued. Oh my uh, God. by Raoul Walsh. So many of these words I love. It's a Robert Mitchum movie. Oh, keep going. <laughs> uh, Robert Mitchum plays a, uh, a guy haunted by visions of the night that his family were massacred. Great. He is I mean, not great raised. Family, great. He is raised by a neighbouring family. He falls in love with his adopted sister, but other members of the family want him dead. Uh, now he's a bit older and he doesn't know why. So it becomes an investigation into that, which leads to an investigation into what happened with his family all that time ago. Sounds excellent. Yeah, sounds... Uh, I don't know. I've never seen it, but I feel like there could be a crossover with 12 Monkeys there as well. It's, mm, it's 70% Western and 30% Noir there's but the idea of him being haunted by a vision yeah, I that guess may the, contain yeah, the dream, information the dream stuff and the fact that they do go back to the dream regularly and it becomes more explicit each there time we go. so there is a little bit of that um a warning for those of you who are sensitive to these things as an earlier western it's got a fucking terrible soundtrack <laughs> just the music's garbage oh right uh, <laughs> I thought it was going to contain animal death or something no. when you're like people are sensitive to these things no it's just yeah it's just I just, I, like it's just got a plinky plonky version of the entertainer and that's meant mm. to be a bit of music <laughs> like they're you know yeah it's just that it's all those it's all the the uh the wild west saloon hits mm. with no actual score mm. so well um for my next recommendation uh i would potentially be recommending overlord because i'm seeing that on wednesday however i haven't seen it yet so i can't necessarily recommend it uh, but i've got a feeling i'm gonna like it we'll see maybe i'll talk about it on an upcoming episode 
However, uh, instead of that, I'm going to recommend uh, a film that I have recommended before. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but and I, I've banged on about it so much over the past months, and I know that Dan's not a massive fan of it either, but um, I'm still obsessed with Mandy. I saw it a couple of weeks ago um, on the big screen at the Union Chapel, and it was an incredible experience, and, and a weird one for me, because the first time I saw it, I saw it on my own, um, but this time I saw it with a crowd, and it was fucking weird. was your second weird. watch? Yeah, second watch, yeah. And it was really weird watching it with a crowd because there were two moments that I actually found devastating when I saw it the first time and actually cried. Um, however, seeing it with a crowd, everyone laughed at those moments, like really uproarious laughter at, at both of the moments, and I felt like I was being fucking attacked, like, you know. Um, <laughs> but if you're interested in uh, hearing more uh, from Panos, uh, after all the interview clips that have gone up over the past few weeks, I did another interview with him, uh, which is on Yahoo uh, Movies UK, and I actually asked him explicitly about that, about how, you know, how does he feel like what was his intention and how does he feel when people laugh at things that he might not necessarily want them to laugh at um and yeah he basically said that um yeah he just people who have been through some shit will react in a different way to people who haven't to those moments yeah. and he hopes that those people will revisit it one day and kind of experience it in the way that he you know he intended. intended basically yeah it's interesting um uh Rory Culkin on was at Sundance was asked about the audience reaction to Lords of Chaos because it's got it's got quite a lot of jokes in it, mm. but all of the performances are very very deadpan, mm. um, and there are a couple of moments that I that were jokes on the page, but mm. there are other things that have kind of become comic in the editing and that kind of stuff. Mm. See, Jonas was an editor originally, and I think Rory was a little hurt that there was laughter mm. in those scenes but Jonas was Jonas felt that the laughs were really important mm. um, and he says that him and the writer had felt that whenever they could put in a joke right. without derailing things they sort of should because it gives you that spectrum of emotion it gives you that that breadth the highs the highs are higher than the lows are lower you know the, the mm. contrast is more is more but it, yeah it, it can be I think it must be very weird to to have an audience respond to your film in a way that isn't how you expected, whether you're a, a director or an actor. I know, yeah, I think in, in, in the case of Mandy, I think they, they both must have been expecting it to a certain extent because of the, you know, the baggage that Cage comes with. You know, I kind of feel, I, I think feeling sorry for him is a bit extreme because obviously, you know, he's got a great career in life and all the rest of it. But I do feel for someone where, you know, people see them as a joke, so whenever they put extreme emotion out there, people are going to laugh at it. It's, yeah, it's a tough it's, one. It's weird because I th I'm very much of the feeling that Cage can deliver a genuinely incredible performance. Me too. Like he's an amazing actor. He needs the right director, though. He That's needs the, the right point. director. And, and as you said, I, w I wasn't as keen on Mandy as you were. I'm obsessed with <sighs> yeah, it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just felt... I, I, it definitely, again, suffered from Festival Promise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think if I'd known more about it going in, I would have enjoyed it more, mm. uh, which is very rare for me to say. That's not mm. normally my opinion about no, these things at totally, all. totally, yeah. But, but I think if I'd known a little bit more about what to expect. I, I'd, I'd just seen Mum and Dad beforehand, which I really didn't like at all. Um, oh, I hated that. Yeah, the yeah. Cage Mum and Dad. For a minute, I thought you were talking about the other Mum and oh, Dad. Oh, no, 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 Stephen Shield. Yeah, no, that's great. great. I love yeah, that film. It's really good. Um, yeah, no, no. Mom and dad, yes. not mum and yeah, dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I thought it was terrible. Yeah, I really, really didn't like terrible. it. And and but but what surprised me was that that didn't like set me up for the wackiness of the second half of of Mandy. Mm. I just yeah, I just wanted to be watching Hellraiser all the way through it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's all films pretty much. But yeah. um, speaking of Hellraiser, uh, yeah. just in case you don't know, uh, dear sweet listener, dear Arrowhead, in two weeks we're going to be covering Candyman. And uh, that will be available on Blu-ray, I think, on the... I don't actually know. No. I was going we'll to try it. and make we'll, up. We'll probably retweet our but it'll, Basically, it, but it'll, it'll be, be out. A, it'll be available just before the podcast yeah, goes Yeah, so, so. Um, you know, we've both watched the disc 
it is the you know if i only recommended one arrow disc this year it would be Candyman. um in terms of what you get on it it's fucking amazing yeah so uh pick it up watch it and then uh come back in a couple of weeks but before we get to that how about we talk about extra features extra features extra features extra features what have we got dan um well uh why get off uh a a comfortable train um <laughs> uh i went because well, it's your stop but yeah well no it's nice i like it <laughs> i'll stay on stay on till the end let's say it's the circle line it's fine i'll come around right yeah good uh, <laughs> uh i chatted to jonas as i said jonas ackerland about about laws of chaos and the making process and uh, and about the, the the fact that it was a film of contrasts and we were yeah i'm just gonna play you a bit of that i think we'll probably end up making the whole interview available at some point in the future yeah but closer to release closer to release yeah, well, and, and then when it comes out we'll almost certainly talk about the film as a whole then as well definitely but, yeah yeah but um but for now here is me talking to jonas ackerland the 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 sort of juxtaposition between the darkness of the events and this actually quite sensitive portrait you've shown of, of some kids making some shitty decisions and it, mm. it tearing everything apart is sort of slightly mirrored in the soundtrack work as well. I think a lot of people assumed that, I mean, obviously they're listening to metal, mm. but the incidental music, a lot of a very obvious choice would have been to go for a, a metal soundtrack there also, whereas you've gone in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, was that always the intention? Absolutely. I mean... Uh, I always knew, I mean, for starters, it's it's not a movie about um, metal music or any music. It's The music is there, and it's part of what they did, and it, it would have been weird to make the movie without any music, but it, it's kind of like painful to listen to black metal music too much, especially in a big movie theater. It's So I try to just, you know, just have enough to show that they were super creative and they created this genre music which was incredible that they actually created it and I also tried to show with the music that they got better and better because in the beginning they're kind of like fumbling around with their instrument and then later in the film you can see that they really found their sound and they're like really damn good playing the instruments um, but I needed a tool to push the other side of the story which is this pretty advanced and weird relationship drama between these characters. Um, and I've always used music. I'm not the kind of director that just puts music on every scene, but I've always used music as one of my tools to, you know, sound effects, edits, sound effects and, and edits and music has always been kind of like how I do stuff. And um, Sigurd Ross has been, uh, I used Sigurd Ross as temp music, and I gave Jonesy in Sigurd Ross the, the, the script very early on. He read it uh, really early on. Um, and uh, it's, it's pretty much a dream coming through to actually have them help us and work on this movie. And they connected to the story, and their music works so well to balance and help me with that part of the story. You know, So it's, it's perfect to the way it worked. That was great. I haven't heard it, but I'm assuming it was great. Cause we are. You, yeah, no, we're, we're it's terrible. <laughs> no, it's, it was really good. He's a fantastic interview subject. Your interviews are uh, always really good, and it slightly pisses me off because it's my job and it's something that um, <laughs> you just do for into. fun. But I, I used to do it probably, yeah, professionally. No, that's, that's true. That's yeah, he's really good. Anyone out there who is going to have the opportunity to interview him, I will give you a hot tip. Don't ask questions about the real-life Varg. He closes up. Fast, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The first question at our Q and A yesterday was yeah. about Vogue, and actually, it was one of the best Q and As as far as quality of questions from the audience I've ever been in. Mm. No one said this is a two part question. No one said this is more of a statement than a question. Mm. <laughs> no one just did a little lecture that demonstrated how much they knew about something. They were all good, mm. good questions. Oh, in fact, I don't know if this has turned up anywhere else. I didn't know it. The the ch so the film involves the burning of quite a lot of churches. Someone in the audience asked, you know, did you, have, did you burn any real buildings or did you construct stuff, you know? And apparently Jonas sent his cameraman off because it was a co-production with Ridley Scott, RSA, Ridley Scott's company. Uh, and we were filming not far away from where they shot the most recent Blade Runner movie. Mm. Um, they sent a, uh, the cameraman off on a jolly and they just burnt down a load of miniatures from Blade Runner. Oh wow! And they doubled as burning churches in oh Lords of God. Chaos. <laughs> oh my God! Amazing. 
That's cool. Right. Well, that's pretty much it. I mean, I I almost just plugged an interview I did with a director recently, but I don't want to give him the oxygen of publicity, so uh, (laughs) I'm not going to plug it. Screw that guy. But uh, yes, that is it from us. Thank you, everybody. Uh, We should do our social media. Yeah. Okay. I'm at 13fingerfx. At the moment, it's mostly retweets of people being nice about Lords of Chaos. Brilliant. Yeah. And then, oh, and it was my dog's birthday recently, so there are some nice pictures of him up there. (laughs) Oh, I mean, you know. Okay. I'm saying nothing. I'm saying nothing. Um, And I am at Sam Ashurst, S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T. At the moment, you'll get a lot of retweets for some reason loads of people are tweeting about near dark at the moment and because i'm obsessed with near dark anytime i see it i have to retweet it so there's a lot of retweets i think the reason near dark's getting mentioned is that uh a certain someone said not that long ago that there weren't very many female directors and they weren't that that interested in horror and a lot of people have responded by mentioning their favorite horror films by few yeah because it's just, I, I mean it's mainly like gifs and like image sets and stuff but yeah they just popped up recently so there's a very good chance yeah, yeah there's but i mean to those people i do say i don't think the, the chance of Catherine bigelow doing a, a, a movie with that company are approximately as likely as me encountering a vampire tonight um <laughs> however yes if you would like to follow me on twitter i will um i will do my best to entertain you yeah nice uh some of you may be wondering well there by the time this goes up there will have been an announcement but at the time of us recording this some of you might be wondering what's going on with fright night club because things have gone a bit weird uh a bit quiet with that but uh there has been uh an email out there will have been an email sent out by the time this goes up uh if you have any questions we will have some more information up on the website it is still happening it has changed form slightly uh, like the T-1000. Like all the greatest <laughs> monsters. Like all the greatest monsters, just when you think you know what it is, it turns into something even more horrific. Um, yeah, so so again, check out um, at Friday Night's Club um, or go over to FridayNightClub.com uh, or .co.uk, we have both, uh, to see what's going on with that. And uh, hopefully you'll be pleased with the way things are developing. And uh, for those revolutionaries who have still uh, have stayed with us, uh, the code word this week is Brewdog. <laughs> That's a weird bit of bonus advertising for them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just what I could see in front of me. So oh, right, I just okay. said it. I yeah. just said it. I don't know why. You know what your instructions are. You know what to do. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional next time. We definitely promise that. Never. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.